2: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, that is me. I'm delighted to speak today with Brian Fogel, an Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker. His first movie was, was it your first movie, Brian? Your first documentary, Icarus?
3: Well, it was my first documentary, but it was not my first uh, film. Great, so we'll we'll go into that. But your first documentary,
2: Out of the Gate, wins an Oscar. Now we're talking about your second documentary, it's called The Dissident. It's about the shocking murder and and attempted cover up of Jamal Khashoggi in, in 2018. And uh, as we speak, or within a day or two, as we speak, you can rent this movie via video on demand. We'll talk about that and what, why it's not on Netflix or Amazon. Um, but let's start with the movie. Why did you want to make a movie about the Jamal Khashoggi story?
3: Well, um, you know, following Icarus, which uh, uh, by the time we we got to the Academy Awards, that was March of 2018, and. And I had been thinking uh, at that time for some time about what my next project was going to be. And having went through, you know, Icarus wasn't just a film. It wasn't just a doc. I mean, we, we ended up protecting the life of a whistleblower. And the themes was, you know, a totalitarian dictatorship uh, that would push forward a, an agenda of, you know, of fake news uh, and and lies at all costs and then ultimately hunt that subject and then ultimately subvert justice uh, and do everything they could to to lie and to cheat. Um, so having went through what, you know, was a very, you know, uh, heavy uh, burden, emotional journey, you know, I felt like my next film, especially, you know, with the kind of uh, the wonderful, uh responsibility that i think uh, many filmmakers would feel uh having been you know awarded uh the oscar it just uh it, it made me very set in wanting to see to it that my next film uh was going to follow in that same trajectory you have, didn't want
2: to you didn't want to take have, a break and do something light do a light comedy
3: uh, yeah exactly i wasn't i wasn't ready to go uh direct a, a comedy or or go do a uh, Uh, A bio doc on, you know, on uh, on Mickey Mouse or whatever you want to call it or, you know. um, So I had been looking for this for what that story was going to be. The first two weeks, really, uh, of October in 2018, I think not just myself, but, you know, the world uh, was captivated by this, you know, this this gruesome uh, story. Uh, And the idea that someone could walk into their own consulate uh, seeking marriage papers um, to be brutally and horrifically murdered and then have that murder, uh, you know, essentially covered up, planted on another government. And then when you got to the in the weeds behind this murder, to understand that this murder was essentially Saudi Arabia. Trying to silence a journalist, trying to silence an opinion maker, trying to silence a critic, and not only had they done this to Jamal, they had went after others, and you know, and what was going on in their own country, um, you know, is and was equally horrific. And I, I thought to myself, this feels like the story. Uh, that I've been looking for, that I've been so, wanting so to is, sink my teeth into.
2: This is weeks after he, you know he walks into the consulate on October second. Within you know days, it's clear that he's been murdered, uh, and the truth sort of spills out in, over a couple of weeks. At what point do you say that's this is what I'm doing? I'm I'm well, getting my I'm financing this. I'm I'm going to start following people along. How long does that take for you to sort of snap into action?
3: Well, it was right away that I said, "Wow, I, uh, this this seems like." Uh, what this? What I'd like to dive into, um, you know, call it October 16th, and and um, there was a story emerging in the New York Times, right, right at the same time, uh, about Omar Abdulaziz, the uh, young Saudi self-exiled uh, dissident, um, who was claiming that his phone had been hacked with Israeli cybersecurity software Pegasus, and that because of this hack, uh, he's saying that they you know, had also hacked Jamal, but they knew what he was, what they were working on, and that he believed that this was one of the primary reasons why they murdered uh, Jamal, because uh, Jamal was working in financing uh, Omar to help them recontrol uh, the narrative uh, on Twitter that Saudi Arabia was, you know, falsely propagating. And so that story had just emerged, and in Omar's story, I said, "Wow, this is." This is the thriller. This is the story that matters now. I mean, Jamal is is dead, so he can't speak for himself. But Omar and his journey uh, certainly can.
2: You wanted a character Um, that was alive, and and, uh, to put it bluntly, and and could tell a, a, a narrative that was happening sort of in real time that you could follow. You start the movie with him in Montreal. Right,
3: right. Because I didn't want to make an archival film. I wanted to craft, as I saw a docu-thriller, that this was, you know, a real-world thriller that if we could get that access and we could gain the trust of these key people, that the story to me, and of course, I didn't know everything at the time, story to me felt, you know, highly cinematic. It felt like a thriller, and that if you can take something, um, you know, that is real, and and what became so emotionally connected for me and kind of falling in love with these characters and their journeys and and this battle that you could make people care um and that you could possibly have an impact in the world and so as the these two weeks you know october 16th i was in um uh italy at the time um i had been speaking at the rome film festival and um I tracked down Karen Atia, Jamal's editor at the Washington Post, and this is, you know, two weeks in. This was literally the day that Saudi Arabia had admitted that he had, in fact, died in the consulate, and I was able to get Karen on the phone, and uh, she said, "Look, uh, you know, myself and the Washington Post uh, are admirers of your work. If if you want to come meet with us in Washington, we'd be happy to sit down and talk and and." um, and see how we can help. So I went from Italy straight to Washington. That was probably October twentieth, and sat in a room with Fred Ryan and Marty Baron and publisher, David Ignatius, and, of the and and every and and they said, um, "Thanks for coming, and let us know how we can help you." Um, and at the same time, um, I established a line of communication with Jenghis, uh Jamal's fiance, who I saw as the emotional connection through this story. I mean, nobody uh, can, you know, I mean, who can fathom uh, believing that your fiance is walking into a consulate to get papers to marry you and that you will never see them again and then to learn what happened.
2: You appear to be following her around with a camera very soon after uh, Jamal Khashoggi was killed. How quickly did you convince her to let you follow her around How, when, when was that happening it's not entirely clear i'm watching it but it looks like it has just happened more or less
3: it was um that was months of trust building so uh um after i speak to her a few times and at the time she didn't speak english so we were speaking through a translator you know she was in in, in terrible loss terrible grieving i mean and uh she said look uh this was now you know early mid-november uh, she goes, I'm not, I am in no place to talk about this, you know, journalists. I mean, they, you can imagine you go from a no one to all of a sudden, like she can't walk out of her home. I mean, there are thousands of cameras, global media cameras, you know, uh, wait, waiting for her. And she goes, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to, you know, uh, I don't want to be doing this. So, uh, so she invited me, uh, she said, look, uh, I don't think i'm going to participate in this project but you know i've I've seen your work i um you know i i I know who you are and you know if you want to come to istanbul and and meet me um i would i'd be willing to take a meeting with you so you know so i went to istanbul i i literally uh you know didn't didn't bring a a camera didn't bring a crew i traveled with um jake swanko my cinematographer we met her in a neutral location she had a translator and um that began the next five weeks of essentially trust building um in istanbul Uh, we weren't filming you know we'd have lunch a couple days later we'd have dinner a few days later we'd have a coffee and as she was grieving as she went through this time i just you know kept saying to her look um if you'll trust me, um, I promise you that I'm going to do everything I can to fight for Jamal's legacy, fight uh, for for justice, and you know if we can go on this journey together, I'll do that. There's
2: footage in there that looks like she is visiting the apartment that Jamal Khashoggi had rented, or an apartment that he had rented, and it looks like she's going there for the first time since that his is murder. Correct. Uh, so that's but that's that is, that's many months after the fact.
3: So that was November. I spent five weeks there. I came back to the u s right after Christmas, and we kept in communication and about two weeks later, she says um brian i've I've thought about it. Um, I think that you are the person that I want to work with. I'm speaking on." Um, at the European parliament, uh, in, in, uh, in Brussels. And it was like early February. And if you want to come meet me there, we can begin filming. And, uh, and I did. And that began, you know, the next, the next year. And, um, when we actually went into that apartment, I want to say that that was in March, uh, or maybe April of 2019. And, after Jamal was murdered, because Jamal owned the apartment, because they were not technically married yet, they were going to get married, mm-hmm. uh, you know that that next week, Hatija didn't have access to the apartment, and the apartment had actually become a crime scene. You know, Turkish investigators had went in there and swept for fingerprints and and DNA, and you know they were they were investigating it as a crime scene, so they had it all locked down. And they had literally just started to move into that home. In fact, the very first night that she had ever spent in that apartment was the night before his murder when Jamal had come back uh, from being in London for five days. Um, So literally that morning, and the footage of them leaving uh, the apartment, right, was literally her, her very first uh, night that she had spent in the apartment. It's a striking scene when you, she
2: goes back to that apartment, and you, there's not a lot of narration in this movie, I mean, really almost none, um, and you sort of have to piece together for yourself. You have to watch closely and understand what's happening, and then you realize what's happening. It's, it's quite emotional. Do you have any trepidation about filming a scene like that, or were, the, were there any other instances where you think, thought, this is too much to show on camera? This is a grieving woman, and while we're gonna honor her husband, we don't need to show this or that scene
3: there was uh, there was a lot and um, but that scene in particular of going into the apartment where the lazy boy was and their bed and his luggage, and I didn't know what was in there. I mean that was that was a hundred percent authentic. I mean, We were with Turkish uh, intelligence and police. She's saying wear his clothes, and they're saying we can they And they hand her the key, and she had been trying to get in there at that point, so October, November, December, January, February, March. So she had been trying to get in there for, you know, about five or six months, six months, you know. And then they finally granted access, and... You know, so you know, it was literally, I didn't know what we were walking into, and we were there you know, with, with uh, my, my camera guy and a small crew, and, um, and that was as real as it gets. Uh, and literally that day when she did visit the apartment, uh, she left with her belongings, with what she had had there, um, and shut the door, and I am positive she has never been back. Uh, so that was, uh, it was, it was, it was heartbreaking.
2: This is a story that that received an enormous amount of coverage in the first few weeks of October, 2018. Like we talked about it, it was grisly and shocking. And then there was audio tapes, the Turkish uh, government were were leaking. Um, And then periodically over the next couple of years, maybe a year and a half, the story would come back into view. There'd be a report from a UN investigator uh, when we moved into the the Jeff Bezos hacking scandal, it it resurfaced again because of the connection with the crown prince. was there something about the story that you think wasn't covered that you wanted to tell, or was the way you wanted to tell it that was going to be worth worth your time and the audience's time?
3: Well, I mean, uh, you know i I went on this journey really starting from the the beginning. and and for me, it was about how do you craft a very, very personal emotional journey that also is a cinematic thriller that hopefully, From that very first scene of omar in a hotel room you're going wait i think this i thought this was the khashoggi movie but you open up on a drone shot and you're coming into a hotel room and this guy is is i mean that that was real and these and this is in the days following his death uh is talking about revenge and you go well who is this guy why am i in canada and so the intention was: How do we craft this this thriller using all those cinematic techniques of the sound design, the score, the motion graphics, the CGI, the animation, the editing, the you know the the interstitials, and, and how we shot the film to make you feel like you're in the Born Identity, except you're not. You're in a a, a true human tragedy that deserves you know justice that deserves action that deserves people in the world to be able to see this and and so but the the thought was if we could craft the film in this regard that you could engage an audience and so you know uh you know so here we are two years past jamal's murder and you know there has been no justice. There's been no accountability. The the 20 members of the G20 have all essentially looked the other way for Saudi money. Uh, the Trump administration, uh, you know, has refused uh, to enact any sanctions to block weapons sales, etc. Um, the G20 was just virtually held in Saudi Arabia. And what we see is, is a true reemergence of, you know, of Saudi investment. I mean, they have scattered their you know billions and trillions into so many companies and industries um i mean netflix just announced an eight picture deal with the saudis um amazon just announced that they were acquiring souk the saudi arabia of amazon live nation amc penske media you know have hundreds of millions of saudi investment uber uh you know SoftBank. There was a know, lot of just...
2: scrutiny about Saudi money in the fall of 2018, and people pulled out of conferences and were asked exactly. whether or not they were going to that take was Saudi all money. A show. And and then it has since went away. Uh, we're recording this just after Doordash went public. They got SoftBank money, which means they got Saudi money, and no one brings that up. Is is your intent here to sort of refocus uh, people's attention on on where? what Saudi money is and where it goes and, and what it means to take that, or do you think that that is a lost cause of this one?
3: Well, I, I think that it is, um, look, we know that money, you know, money like that, investment like that, um, is a very, 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 very hard thing to walk away from. And what we know is that, you know, faced with, okay, do I take $500 million uh, for my movie theater chain, and it's an investment, or do I fight for human rights in the, you know, eight, nine hundred people that were beheaded in Saudi last year, and Lujan Hatul, the woman activist who's sitting uh, in a Saudi prison on trial, and Omar's brothers, and, you know, we know the answer of most of these companies that you know they're going to put their shareholder accountability uh you know first they're going to put their business interests ahead of that and ultimately there's that risk assessment you know and look uh as much as i would have loved this film uh to be on netflix and i would have wanted this film on netflix i understand what is going on in the backdoor communications of that is, okay, do we want to put our platform at risk? Maybe they're going to hack us. Maybe they're going to take our servers down. Maybe they're going to boycott us. Maybe they're going to, uh, you know, launch an attack on our offices in the Middle East. Maybe because they're friends with the Emiratis in Egypt uh, will be, you know, uh, will be canceled off their, their networks there, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these kind of Things that weigh on political interests and media companies ultimately leads to a failure of accountability uh, and a and a thwarting of of uh, of any of any justice. I'm going to break up this conversation for just a minute so we can hear from a sponsor.
2: we will be right back.
0: Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is
2: But let's talk about this. You bring you bring the movie to Sundance. You self you, you I, I assume you self financed it and, and got uh, other investors to to pitch in initially. And you bring it to Sundance where you it, it gets rave reviews. And I'm assuming you think you're going to sell it there and then, or did you not think Did you think at that point no one's going to touch this e- anyway?
3: No, no. We listen. You know, I I believed um, that the film and you know obviously the the story of the film. Uh, The human rights, uh, you know, angle on this, the urgency of the film would overcome uh, uh, the fear that these global distributors might have had. Um, I was wrong. I was wrong. So Netflix, again, like he,
2: this was an Icar- Icarus, was a Netflix film. You, you, you praise them uh, effusively at, your, at, at the Oscars when you won. Um, they seem like a very obvious candidate. Uh, and then so does Amazon, another big uh, purveyor of, of, of documentaries. Also, there's an obvious connection. You've got the Washington Post uh, journalists and, and publishers in the, in the movie. Uh, Jeff Bezos is, doesn't speak of in course. it, but you see him. Um, Jeff Bezos what, does
3: speak in it. Well, he doesn't speak to not you on, not, right not not right. as not an interview but he speaks right. at, uh, at at on the stage. memorial for right. Hatija and, and he stands on stage and goes you know uh Hattisha, you know we are here and you are not alone <laughs> so so what did, did what did those companies tell
2: you if anything directly about why they weren't picking the movie up um
3: i uh, i don't want to get into the weeds on that Um, but what I will say is that, um, I am, I don't find my, my anger, um, pointed at these companies, you know, um, I know, you know, the, the the people running, uh, these, these companies, whether it's, you know, whether it's Apple or HBO or Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or, you know, uh, or the major studios, I, I have relationships with them. Um, and uh, you know, but but I'm disappointed that we are in a um, a cycle that we're in an environment, and I think a lot of this started with the Trump administration, where these media companies just became very scared because you had a, a had and have a a president that was so eager to attack attack them, call for their breakup, uh, embarrass them. Publicly humiliate them, launch campaigns against them. I mean, if you remember, you know, every time that that Trump talks about Jeff Bezos, he doesn't refer to him as Amazon owner Jeff Bezos. He refers to him as Washington Post owner Jeff Bozo. So, I do. I mean, I do think know. there's something
2: about movies and streaming that's particular, and, and it's internet distribution that's that's an interesting wrinkle here because all of these companies have global businesses or aspire to having global businesses, which means they all sort of have to then comport with, they have to sort of make nice with lots of different countries and/or in some cases take stuff down. Netflix has already done that in Saudi Arabia. Um, did you ever think, like, look, maybe is there, there's a way we can just do this? A, a U.S. domestic deal and we can get this out to people uh, more easily? We can get it on sort of Netflix U.S. or Amazon U.S. and maybe we'll just skip the rest of the world or or some sort of compromise where you get it to more people more easily?
3: Look, we have, um, you know, COVID has been a, a disaster. You know, we have an incredible distributor in Tom Mortenberg and Briarcliff Entertainment. Tom did Spotlight. He did Crash. He did Fahrenheit 9-11. You know, we had planned to be on uh, in 800 screens, uh, on October second, on the anniversary of Jamal's murder, um, that got pushed. That got pushed. Now we're essentially launching in theaters Christmas Day, but that's limited, and on video on demand, uh, January eighth. So you know, through all of this, we still were you know we were able to get a distributor, and we were able to actually raise um, you know a, a pretty substantial amount behind the the promotion and advertising of the film. And we have an incredible international sales company in Hanway, and they have lined up for us all these amazing global distributors. We had a distributor in Turkey that was going to put it on 800 screens, like literally treat it like it was Star Wars in uh, in Turkey. We have a, the probably the single best independent distributor in the UK, Altitude, incredible company, DCM in Germany, Mad Men in Australia. Um, uh, you know these, these, are, these are companies that are the top of the top in, in independent you know, theatrical releases, and we're in COVID. And so everything is on hold. Everything has been thwarted. All of the plans are there. And that's where the power of the streamer, of a global streamer that can just put it in someone's home for them to watch it, becomes all the more important. Did you remind that Netflix is,
2: that they're the, they're the ones who picked up the uh, the Sony movie uh, the North Korea Sony movie after the hack and, and were the first ones to step up and, and stream that one
3: years later yeah the, years later was it years later was out of it it was a couple of years yeah
2: I thought they were early
3: on I have to go back and we'll double check I did, look, I did have they, one qu- d- look yeah, they're, they're a different company you know what, what happens is more money, more problems more subscribers the more you're on top of the world the more you're the biggest you know the the less you want to fall the less you want to make a misstep so you know so the, so the Netflix that 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 did Icarus a few years ago is a different Netflix than the Netflix of today um, and you know that that said you know I'm I'm grateful to Netflix I mean they they gave Icarus life it, they they promoted it they helped that film be seen and I am grateful to them. You know, I, I care and like, you know, uh, so many people in that company. And I'm sure I'm going to continue uh, to have projects with them. But I think that the bigger thing becomes of stories like this that need to be told, that are about justice and accountability. And I made this movie for Jamal. I made this movie for Atisha. I made this movie for Omar. And I promised them that I would fight for them, that I would have this movie seen. And I think the, the problem that, that we're seeing in this global environment is how will and how does content like this continue to break through when you're in this global landscape where the bottom line, shareholder accountability, risk, all these other things are the main concern rather than what should be the concern, which is how to make the world a better place and how to fight for, against human rights abuses.
2: I mean, it's a double edged sword, right? Because the internet allows you to distribute this around the world, um, and if you wanted to, you uh, presumably could throw it up for free on YouTube or something to that effect. I mean, that's, you're, you're not a, you're not a charity, uh, and you and you do want the power of commercial distributors to sort of push it in front of people. But because they're global, like we discussed, that makes it more fraught. Um, I just had one more in the weeds question about the movie, and then I wanted to ask you about how you got into the business. Um, I remember when the story broke and the the Turkish government was leaking audio from the consulate and I kept thinking, I'm assuming this audio is correct, but I'm a little uneasy because Turkey's not a neutral player here. They have a long running feud with the Saudis uh, and they are an authoritarian government themselves. Um, Did you have any concerns or reservations about, about interviewing them? You interview various uh, Turkish officials um, and there's, Unless I missed it, there's no sort of caveat about sort of the backstory about what their motivation might be in speaking to you or publicizing this case. Was that something you, you wrestled with at all?
3: You know what? Um, yes. You know, okay, Turkey has its own politics, there's its own, you know, uh, human rights abuses, um, et cetera. And Turkey is obviously, you know, controversial on the world stage. Erdogan. Um, And of course, you can get caught down that rabbit hole of what were Turkey's intentions? Were they trying to politically play this? Were they trying to hold, uh, were they trying to embarrass Saudi uh, basically for their own gains? Were they trying to do this? All of that is inconsequential to the facts, to the story. And in this particular case, in this instance, Turkey is and was on the right side of this. They have been the only country in the world that has continued to try to hold Saudi Arabia accountable for this murder, has investigated this murder, had a trial and absentia for this murder, um, has tried to get other countries, United States, UK, Germany, uh, France, on and on and on behind uh, this, uh, this you know, fighting for accountability and justice. and. And so when I was building that trust with the Turks, and that trust went all the way up to the president, and this was months and months of trust building. That that transcript that's in the film, like that has not been leaked to the media to this day. I mean, they leaked parts and sentences, but they ended up handing me a 37-page transcript. And basically me and intelligence agencies have this. That's it. That police footage, that has not been leaked. None of those people in the film, from the chief prosecutor to the head of the justice ministry to the president's spokesman to the police CSI examiner, none of them have ever given a formal interview regarding the Khashoggi murder. All of that evidence and that access essentially was given to me through building trust. And that trust was... Look, I'm not here looking at the politics. I'm not here looking at, you know, other things that that Turkey can arguably, you know, uh, be called out being on the wrong side of. I mean, you know, they just jailed, you know, uh, 170 uh, guys for, for life as part of the Gulenist coup, you know, in 2016. And you know obviously, there's controversy around that, and all the journalists sitting in their jails. But that's not what this story was and in this story, um it was about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and Saudi Arabia trying to pin this murder on Turkey, and it was about Turkey fighting for justice and so I was proud as a filmmaker to work with the Turks to try to bring that story forward um because you know. There's, there's nothing, there's always rusty edges. There's always variables.
2: Do you give them any assurance that the movie's going to, you're going to reach a certain conclusion? Do they have any capacity to look at the movie before you, before you finish it or suggest edits? No, no, nothing like no.
3: that. It was just no. purely, look, you when you know, the Turks, um, they, they don't do business by phone. They don't do business by text. They don't do business by email. You want to meet them? Come meet you want to take a meeting come to my office and that off and that meeting's usually 2 3 hours and involves you know turkish delight and pastries and food and coffee and tea and you know and and that's how the turks do business and so you know that that first 5 weeks that i was in istanbul meeting with the my time was split between meeting people in the government and that relationship of building that trust um, in the government you know, was a year um in the making and by the time we got the transcript it was literally about a month ahead of sundance which wasn't enough time for me to fully construct that um that sequence of the film which is you know uh, a really intense uh sequence yeah um and you know in post sundance we went and spent six months working on that transcript and murder sequence um because you know Turkey had you know taken a year uh, to provide um, that transcript to me, because that's was how long it took to, to build that trust to that level that they saw in me someone that was working to authentically tell the story. Was also what you're, you're talking about is the, was...
2: the transcript of of his murder. Yes, uh, yeah. which is which I'd read bits of in the past, but you presented in a truly chilling way. And part of that, I guess, is that I hadn't seen the full transcript. I'm going to let you go in a minute, but I do want to I, I do want to get to this. Your Wikipedia says. Brian Fogel was a stand-up, and then he made Jutopia, which was a satirical Broadway play, and then he made uh, an Oscar-winning documentary, Icarus. Um, I don't want you to tell me your entire life story, but how did you pivot into documentary making?
3: Well, um, uh, long story short, um, in 2003, I wrote and co-starred and produced uh, a play, a comedy uh, called Tutopia It was about uh, a Gentile, a Christian guy that wanted to marry a Jewish girl so he'd never have to make another decision. Um, at the time, I wanted to be an actor and comedian, and I saw basically theater as as a route for me to be on stage. That it was something that I could do, that I could control. And we put up this show in Los Angeles. <clears throat> it becomes a an overnight kind of smash hit, and we play for a year and a half in LA. We bring it to New York. We play for three and a half years in New York. And I've literally starred in this show like 2,000 times, no exaggeration. And so suddenly I'm trapped in this Jutopia prison. Uh, I was like, you know, Jason Alexander on, on Seinfeld or, mm-hmm. or David Schwimmer on Friends. Nobody was ever going to see me as anything other than the Jutopia guy. We did a book. We had traveling productions of it. We had licensed productions of it. I then, you know, started directing um, all these other productions, uh, and uh, and in that process, I held on to make a film adaptation of the play that was called Utopia. It had a big cast in it: Rita Wilson and Jamie Lynn Seagler and Peter Stormare and Joel David Moore and Cameron Manheim and Phil Rosenthal. The list goes on, um, Um, the, uh, the investor decided, uh, to, uh, turn down an offer for distribution. They put it onto on-demand. It wasn't a brilliant movie, but it was fun and it did no business. Um, it was looked at as a flop, both critically and, uh, and commercially. And I found myself in director's jail and I was at the time basically facing 40 years old. Um, I was, uh, I was broke. I was airbnb being out my apartment that I was renting just to survive. Um, I was looking at literally opening up a gelato store. I mean, it had gotten that bad. And, um, and my love, my passion in life had always been cycling. And, and as I was going through this pretty bad depression over you know, what was a couple of years, a uh, year and a half, year, I started really getting back into cycling as kind of my therapy and what was clearing my mind, and Lance Armstrong, who was my hero, you know, came out and confessed that he doped, and I got this idea, which was, what if someone were to do, like, supersize me, except in the world of doping and sports, That sounds really interesting. Everybody always goes, what does this stuff do? What do these substances do? Does it make you Superman? Would have Lance won all those tours had he not been doping? What does it mean for all of sport? And as I saw it, uh, the doping system uh, in sport was a fraud because they never caught Lance. So I spent the next year developing kind of the treatment for what this documentary was going to be. And I was drawn to it because just like when I had started Utopia, the play, It was something that I felt like was in my control. I didn't need a thousand people. I didn't need, you know, a hundred million dollars or ten million dollars or five million dollars. I didn't need all the approval of others to be given the permission to do something. It'd be something that I could actually do. I was able to raise uh, uh, the first investment into it, which was about three hundred and fifty thousand and mid 2014 uh, from a from a friend. And he said, you know, uh, Brian, you, you deserve another chance in life. And he put up that money and, uh, I began making Icarus a year later. Um, I was on the verge of this scandal erupting. Um, we were then able to get further financing from impact partners, uh, out of New York. And two years later, uh, I'm on, uh, the stage at the Academy Awards. So you, you, fortuitous timing,
2: right? Because you start this sort of as the documentary, the the newest documentary boom is happening with streaming, where Netflix and then Amazon, everyone else figures out that people love to watch documentaries if you let them watch them at home and they're relatively cheap to acquire and you can acquire a lot of them. Um, You just finished documentary two. Do you think you go for three and four? Is this what you're gonna
3: keep doing? I I have three uh, deep in the works. Uh, that is, you know, uh, thick into production. Uh, I have four, which I'm simultaneously, uh, working on, but more as a producer rather than director. And then I have a a scripted project that should start towards the end of 2021. That's a amazing limited series, uh, very much of the ilk of Icarus and dissident uh but you know real world uh spy thriller political story
2: and you're hoping one or more of these gets on our streaming service
3: Absolutely. Yes. We'll, uh, okay. You know we'll we'll see. It's uh it's a tricky time and I'm and I'm optimistic that uh that the Biden administration he has been very very vocal that he plans to hold Saudi Arabia accountable. He plans to really uh you know Look at this relationship that the U.S. and Saudi has, and and I think and I think his intention is to, you know, reexamine this and uh, and have sanctions and call for justice. I mean, whether or not that happens, um, it's to be determined. But I do have optimism that um, perhaps if a film like The Dissident um, would have been coming out uh, during the Biden administration, or had Biden been our president uh, at Sundance last year. That um, that the distribution for The Dissident uh, would have been uh, different. But, you know, that said, I'm, I'm very optimistic that audiences will find the film uh, on demand and, and rent it, um, that it'll, you know, make its way. Uh, and uh, I'm grateful that we do have distribution.
2: Let's do what we can to help promote it. The uh, Dissident is on a streaming platform near you, should uh, be very easy to access. And Brian would like you to go see it. It is a thriller, you will enjoy it. Brian, thanks for your time.
3: Thank you so much for having me on.
2: That was super fun. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel who produce and edit the show. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring the show to you for free. A bunch of more cool stuff is coming your way for free in the near future. Thanks for listening. Thanks for writing. Talk to you soon.